this morning here at Village Bible Church. I don't think I knew the story about Pastor Tim and Anchor for the Soul. Even though I've known him for many years, I don't think I ever heard that story before. You just never know how things are going to work together. Wonderful to be here. Take your Bibles. We'll get there in a minute. But take your Bibles and open them to John 18 for the message entitled, A Life Given, Not Taken. While you're turning there, welcome. Special greeting to our Internet audience watching here in America by the Internet and all around the world. Glad you are with us. Before I begin my message, let me say one further word about your pastor, my friend, Tim Badal. Got to know him some years ago. We were both younger back then. And got to come here early on, early days here in Sugar Grove. And then a few more times since then. But it's been a few years. It's mind-blowing to be here today to see what God has done. God is doing something amazing here. The last time I was here, some years ago, I remarked that this church, in my opinion, is the best kept secret in Chicago. That's not true anymore. Your church is known far and wide. It's an example for churches across Chicago, America, and around the world of how to make an impact for Christ in a changing world. So I salute you. I thank God for you. Thank you for letting me and my wife come along for the ride this morning. We love this church. We love your pastor. All that's happening here. Now, thank Pastor Tim for his invitation and for his support of Keep Believing Ministries. We are honored to have your pastor on the board of reference for our ministry. Now, turning to the task at hand. John chapter 18. It is now late on Thursday evening. Jesus has met in the upper room with his disciples. There he celebrated Passover, instituted the Lord's Supper, and he warned them, one of you will betray me. He gave final instructions. He prayed for his men. Now, the pace of events quickens. The river of God's purpose flows swiftly. Jesus and his men leave the upper room. They make their way through one of the gates of the old city of Jerusalem. They go down, down, down into the Kidron Valley. They cross the dry stream bed, creek bed. Then they go up the other side, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. It's a place where the olives were crushed to produce olive oil. It is still there today. In fact, if you ever go to the Holy Land, and I hope you do, you should go. If you ever go to the Holy Land, your tour guide will take you to Jerusalem, and then he'll take you down into the Kidron Valley and up the other side, just exactly what's written here in the Bible. You can walk today exactly where ancient Gethsemane was, and it is still an olive grove today. If you walk among those ancient olive trees you can imagine the scene on that fateful night 2,000 years ago. There, Jesus wrestled with his fate while his disciples slept. About midnight, 
you could make out in the distance, down the slope, up the other side, a torch parade, a parade of torches and lanterns coming out of the old city. You could watch them as they come down the valley cross, the Kidron Creek, and up the other side. You get closer and closer. There were soldiers plus the priests. They were led by Judas. He knew where to go because he knew Jesus very well. Gethsemane, you see, was Jesus' favorite place for prayer and meditation. In the darkness of this night, Judas knew where to find his master, the man he had called his master. You see, that was the arrangement that Judas had made with the chief priest. They told him, lead us to Jesus, we'll do the rest. Judas was nothing more than a paid guide. That's all they wanted from him. Lead us to Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He agreed to the deal. Peter, James, John, and the rest, they have no idea what's about to happen. But none of this surprised our Lord. John 18, 1 through 14, tells the story of the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the midnight encounter that sets in motion the final chain of events that will lead to the cross on Friday morning. Now, if you look at this passage from one perspective, if you look at it, but you don't think about it, you may say to yourself, you may conclude, in fact, that events now are spinning out of control, that Jesus had been in control, but now he's given up control. But you would be wrong to say that. The whole point of this passage is that Jesus is still in full control. No one can touch him, much less arrest him apart from his permission. That is to say, in the greatest crisis of his life, Jesus is in charge. So then, this is the story of the midnight arrest of the Son of God. But it is also the story of how he gave himself. It's the story of a life given, not taken. We see that four ways in this passage. Number one, Jesus is in charge of the circumstances. Verses one through three. He chose the time and the place. Reading the text now. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, meaning left the old city of Jerusalem, crossed the Kidron Valley, down into the valley, up the other side. There was a garden on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. He and his disciples went into it. Verse 2. Now, Judas, look what John says. Don't miss it. Look what John says. Judas, who betrayed him? They never got over it. The other disciples they never got over what Judas did to their dying day. They never forgot. They never got over it. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden. He knew where to come, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, when John says that Judas came up out of the darkness leading a detachment of soldiers. He uses a word which has various meanings. It's a military term. It could mean a Roman cohort, which would be 6,000 soldiers. But that same word was often used for a smaller division of soldiers, maybe 200 to 600. Let's just take the smaller number for the moment. Think about that. The chief priest sent 200 armed 
Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. What are they afraid of? A riot? A full-on battle? On one side you have Jesus plus 11 disciples. Judas has gone to the other side now. Even if they were all armed, which they weren't, what could 11 men plus Jesus do to 200 trained Roman soldiers? It's not a fair fight. It'd be over in just a few seconds. Our Lord knew this. Peter didn't understand what was happening. He's ready to fight. We'll get to that in just a moment. Here come the soldiers and the priests. Judas leads the way through the darkness. Verse 3 adds an important detail. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Weapons. Ready for battle. Ready to fight. When this posse shows up, they think, they think they are tracking Jesus down. It's the other way around. Jesus is leading them in. He did not run from this place. He boldly walked to it. The Jews thought Jesus and his men might turn Gethsemane into an ancient Alamo where every man went down fighting. But they were wrong. Verse 4 tells us Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. James didn't know. Peter didn't know. Matthew didn't know. Thomas didn't know. Bartholomew didn't know. They didn't know. Jesus knew and he was not afraid. So early on now, let's make sure we get this. He did not flinch. He did not hide. He did not run away. Jesus chose the time and place of his arrest. He went to Gethsemane not to get away from Judas, but to make it easy for Judas to find him. You say, it wasn't a surprise? Oh, no. It was planned this way before the world began. Now, before he became president, John F. Kennedy wrote a best-selling book called Profiles in Courage. I thought about that book when I read this story. Jesus is the ultimate profile in courage. He refuses to run. He refuses to hide. He boldly faces the men who came to arrest him. Whatever else you can say about Jesus, don't call him a victim in the sense in which we use the term. Because usually when we say victim, we mean helpless victim. Jesus was many things. He was no helpless victim. He gave his life. It was not taken from him. In the end, you see, the soldiers were powerless. They could not arrest Jesus unless he wanted to be arrested. Judas could not betray him unless Jesus was willing to be betrayed. They could not kill him on their own. But by doing it this way, Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. Number two, Jesus is not only in charge of the circumstances, he's in charge of his captors, verses 4 through 7. They bow before his glory. They bow before his glory, verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them. Oh, no, wait a minute. Wait, stop right there. Here's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus and his men. He has been praying in agony, sweating as it were great drops of blood, but not thy will, but my, not my will, but thine be done. He's here. He knows what's about to happen. Here's Judas and the bad guys. And they're coming this way, coming this way, coming this way, coming this way. They don't know where Jesus is, but Jesus knows exactly where they are. And as they get closer, Jesus does not wait. He steps out to meet them. He takes the initiative. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus says. And look what John 
Can't, we can't skip this stuff, folks. Look what John adds, little parenthetical comment. And Judas, the traitor. They never got over it. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. His captors come for him, but he is in charge of them. That's why John says, Jesus stepped out to meet them. So right over the story, these words, no fear, no doubt, no retreat. He meets them before they meet him. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, the soldiers replied. And from our Lord comes the answer, I am he. Now I need to tell you something. All of our modern versions translate this the same way. I am he. There is no word for he in the Greek text. There were ways you could add a little word that means he. You could do that in Greek. It's not there. It's added for clarity. But literally, Jesus said, I am. I am. His words, the Romans wouldn't have known. The soldiers wouldn't, they wouldn't comprehend the meaning of that. But the Jewish priests, of course, they knew why. Go back to Exodus 3. Moses in the burning bush, it's not consumed. Take off your shoes. Ground your standings on holy ground. Go, go and deliver my people and tell them, I am has sent you. God revealed himself to Moses by saying, I am that I am. Tell them that. You see, seven times in John's gospel, seven times in John's gospel, Jesus identifies himself that way. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. But this time, Jesus doesn't add anything to it. He simply says, I am. It was a claim of deity. What in the world does it mean to say that God is the great I am? Well, it means he always was, he always is, he always will be. He's the personal, eternal, self-existent God of the universe. He's above all things, beneath all things, behind all things, and in front of all things. By Him, all things hold together. In Him, all things have their being. Without Him, the universe does not exist. What does it mean personally for you and me to say that God is the great I Am? Well, it means this. God is saying, Jesus is saying, I am your strength. I am your courage. I am your health. I am your hope. I am your supply. I am your defender. I am your deliverer. I am your forgiveness. I am your joy. I am your future. God is saying, Jesus is saying to you and me, I am whatever you need, whenever you need it. Friends, he's the all-sufficient God for every crisis. Understand now what's about to happen. There flowed out from Jesus an authority that was not of this world, which is why when Jesus said, I am he, it says they backed up the bad guys backed up and they fell down backwards. Now, I don't know, I'm mentioning a name to you here, depending on your age. You've got to be of a certain age to know this name. Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Anybody here recognize the name Dr. J. Vernon McGee? Yes. I see where the Christians are in the audience today. <laughs> I'm just teasing. But you do have to be over a certain age. You know, a great Bible teacher of the last generation. Now, he's been in heaven over 30 years, but uh, he is still today. After 30 years in heaven, he's still the number one most listened to Christian radio broadcast in the whole world. I recommend him to you. I was listening 
to J. Vernon McGee on this passage. He made a comment I have not heard or seen from anybody else. He said, notice the text says they fell backwards. Dr. McGee said, if you fall forward in the Bible like that, it's to worship. When you fall backwards, it's because you are afraid. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 40, verse 14. Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Now, understand, when the men fell down, it's the perfect opportunity. All the bad guys have fallen down. It's the perfect opportunity to escape. He could have run away. They couldn't have stopped him. But he would run from nothing because his hour had finally come understand something please Jesus died of his own free will he did not die because he could not help it he did not suffer because he could not escape all the soldiers of Pilate's army all of them could not have taken him unless he was willing to be taken they could not touch a hair on his head if he had not given them permission now one little detail and then we'll rush on it we gotta say something about this John points out that when the bad guys come, who is standing among them? Judas. Judas. Few people knew Jesus as well as Judas. If we start at the beginning, we find a remarkable series of facts about Judas. He was personally chosen to be an apostle by Jesus Christ. He forsook all to follow the Lord. He spent three and a half years traveling the length and breadth of Israel with Jesus. He saw all the miracles of Christ in person. He heard Christ give all of his famous sermons. He watched as Christ healed the sick, raised the dead, and cast out demons. He, with all the other apostles, was sent out to preach the gospel. He was one of the leaders of the apostolic band. And by the way, read back in John 12. It says... That Judas was the he was the money he, he was the treasurer of the apostolic band. He held the money bag, right? You don't give that to a man you question. You take your mo- you take your guy that you trust the most and put him in charge of the money. All I'm saying is, the other disciples, even to this night, even to this night, they didn't have a clue. No one suspected him of treason. Tonight he stands on the other side. He shows how far and how fast a religious person can fall. Two hours earlier, he was eating with Jesus in the upper room. At midnight, he stands with the soldiers. He betrayed the Son of God for 50 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. Judas was an insider, and he used an insider's knowledge to lead the soldiers to Jesus. You know what bothers me about this story? And it doesn't bother me about you. It bothers me about me. It's but a short step from cheering Jesus as he feeds the 5,000 to consorting with his enemies. Let me remind you of what Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said, quote, We may know all doctrinal truth and be able to teach others and yet prove to be rotten at heart and go down to the pit with Judas. Number three. Jesus is in charge of his companions. Verses eight and nine. He protects them. 
from danger. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. He's not only in charge of the circumstances and his captors, he's in charge of his companions. His only concern is for them. He knew they weren't ready for what was about to happen. By the way, from Mark, Mark's gospel, Mark notes that after his arrest, all the disciples fled. But they got away because Jesus gave himself up. He took care of his men in the moment of crisis. So in this early scene of the crucifixion story, Christ takes the punishment for his people. While he is led away, they go free. Number four, Jesus is in charge of the chaos. He willingly drinks the cup, verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, probably not a long cavalry saber, more like a dagger, short sword, who had a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Only John tells us his name. The servant's name was Malchus. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It'd be easy to criticize Peter, but we must not. He and he alone was ready to fight and die. He and he alone drew his sword. Peter knows now he has to act. He's got to do something to protect his master. Grabbing his sword, he takes a wild swing. Aimed, I think, at no one in particular. The sword finds its mark, but not as Peter intended. Look, if he hoped to scare off the soldiers, that didn't work. If he hoped to inspire the other disciples to join him, that might have worked. Had not Jesus stepped in. You know, there's a lot of nerves up here in your ear. That's going to hurt when the ear gets whacked off and the blood is going to come spurting out. No doubt the servant fell to the ground and began screaming in pain. Blood must have come spurting out the hole where his ear had been. The soldiers would have drawn their swords ready to kill Peter. But before things get out of hand, Luke tells us Jesus touches Malchus' ear, healing it instantly. And just like that, the crisis is over. Say whatever you want to say about Peter. And there's a lot to say about Peter. If he misunderstood Jesus that night, at least he knew which side he was on. If they were going to kill Jesus, they were going to have to go through Peter to do it. He was ready to charge hundreds of armed men to protect his master, give him his due. Peter will soon deny Jesus. But right now, he's ready to die for him. I don't blame Peter for what he did. It's after midnight. He's tired, distraught, confused, angry, worn out, upset, and in his despair, he wants to do something, anything that will rescue Jesus. My whole sermon now, my whole sermon hangs on the next few verses. So listen up. Peter wants to help Jesus, but Jesus doesn't need his help. Jesus doesn't need Peter's help. He doesn't want to be rescued. Jesus can take care of himself. What seems to be a cluttered, random, dangerous turn of events turns out to be the plan of God unfolding to bring salvation to the world. When evil seems to be winning, Christ calmly submits, knowing that in the end, God's will must be done. That brings us to the final words of Jesus before he was arrested. 
put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus was always in charge, even in the garden in the darkness of the night, surrounded by the soldiers who came to take him away. He came to drink the cup of suffering, and drink it he must. About 130, maybe 140 years ago, there was a woman in Great Britain by the name of Anne Ross Cousin, who wrote a poem that became a hymn that became famous that we never sing anymore. I wish we did. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings flow for me. Jesus is in complete control. He's the great I am. No one will stop him. All things are working together. Even in this crisis, he embraces his destiny. He's no helpless victim. He is the victor who wins by seeming to lose. Got it? He's the victor who wins by seeming to lose. He refuses to use violence to achieve his goal. He willingly goes with the soldiers even though he knows what is ahead. This story, this passage, two things stand out in bright relief. The sinfulness of man and the submission of the Savior. They come with evil intent. He submits to gain their salvation. The great I am is now led away, hands bound like a sheep to the slaughter. Every detail is under divine control. Out of the darkness of this hour, God's will is done. So Judas, he's now exposed as a traitor. Jesus stands as the supreme Savior. Peter does wrong, but from an honest heart. Evildoers are satisfied because they've got their man. The disciples scatter into the darkness. His hands bound. King Jesus is led away. All has unfolded as the Father planned. Now, it's about 1 a.m. in the morning. 1 a.m. now on Friday morning. Between about 1 a.m. and maybe 7 a.m., Jesus is going to undergo six different trials, three of them Jewish, three of them Roman. The outcome of all those trials has been foreordained. Listen to what I'm about to say. Before Caiaphas was stirred from his bed, before the devil entered Judas, before the upper room, before the triumphal entry, before John the Baptist preached by the Jordan River, before Christ was born in Bethlehem, before Isaiah prophesied of a lamb led to slaughter, before Abraham saw a ram caught in the thicket, before Adam sinned in the garden, before the earth was created, in eternity past, the verdict was in before the trial began. Jesus will die for the sins of the world. It did seem violent and random that night. The disciples ran away in terror. Evil seems to have won the day. The Jews gloat. The Roman soldiers have their man. Judas wonders what he has done. Peter follows afar off. It's now 1 a.m. All is silent in Gethsemane, silent and empty. The excitement is over. As the passage closes, we see the soldiers taking Jesus to stand before Annas. Soon he'll be beaten, mocked, scourged, and falsely accused. He'll wear a crown of thorns. 
He'll carry his own cross until he can carry it no more. When Friday comes to an end, they will lay his dead body to rest in the garden tomb. He takes the cup and drinks it down to the last drop. He does not flinch to do God's will. When evil men do their worst, God does his best. When the world mocks, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Don't miss one final point. In his last words before his arrest, Jesus remembers the disciples, take me, let these go free. The whole gospel's in that statement. Jesus has taken that we might go free. He dies that we might live. He bears the cross that we might be forgiven. He suffers that we might have eternal life. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. These words are attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor and grant to me thy grace. In this story, we see how Jesus treats his enemies. When they come for him, he does not resist. When they are hurt, he heals them. He's arrested and led away to die for the very men who are putting him to death. So let me say here as I come to an end, on him, on Jesus was laid the sin of us all. If we are not saved, we cannot blame Jesus. The fault is all our own. And my final question, do you know him? Do you know him? That is the question of the ages. When you stand at the gate of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? What answer will you give? I was a member of Wesley Methodist Church. That's not good enough. I was an elder at Wayside Chapel. You're going to be in big trouble. My father built the church. That's good, but that's not the right answer. I lived a good life. We're happy for you, but that's... You still weren't good enough. I gave to feed the orphans in Namibia. That's truly wonderful. God bless you. But that won't open the door of heaven. I was baptized by Father O'Reilly. I'm sure he was a good man, but that's not enough. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. You've got to go all in on the Son of God who loved you and died for you. So I ask you again, do you know him? Do you know him? I'm not asking you about your church membership. I'm not asking if you're Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Brethren, Lutheran, Bible Church, Pentecostal, Church of Christ, Episcopalian, or anything else. Do you know him? He died that you might go free. Do you know him? Friends, we have a Savior who is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. Come to Jesus. Run, run, run to the cross. He was arrested for you. He was tried for you. He was treated like a criminal for you. He died on the cross for you. And now for real, the final time. Do you know him? Before you leave this room, 
don't leave here until you can answer yes. What a Christ. What a salvation he brings. Glory to his name.